And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Jackson Phillip, who writes, Hi, John. I saw a report that said Borat drew more viewers in its first weekend of streaming than Mulan did. But then when I read a bit further, I realized that it still only got 1.6 million viewers and it was free. Are things really that lopsided? Listening to social media, you'd think 100 million people or more were watching streaming. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And uh, yeah, the numbers have come in for Borat. Uh, what is it called again? The uh, subsequent movie film is the name of it. Borat's subsequent movie film. The first numbers are in, and Borat, of course, debuted on Amazon Prime. Borat debuted to 1.6 million viewers 1.6 million viewers that's a lot in some ways not in others anyway this comes to us from the folks over at variety who write the estimated 1.6 million u.s households streaming the borat sequel on amazon prime video during its opening weekend thursday october 22nd through sunday october 25th according to data from uh, samba tv by comparison mulan registered 1.12 million households streams on disney plus over labor day weekend the firm estimates now it's important to point out that yes borat did get significantly more viewers in its opening weekend than Mulan did, which was set to be one of the year's big blockbusters. As a matter of fact, the trailer for Mulan, I think is like the number five or number six all-time world record holding trailer of all time. Like the trailer for Mulan, when it came out, I think it's in the first 24 hours of viewing, I think it's the number five or number six all-time highest viewed trailer ever. This Mulan movie was set to be a blockbuster. And it got 1.12 million viewers in its first 24 hours. Now, of course, this is not an apples to apples comparison because you have to take it with the grain of salt that if you are an Amazon Prime member, you just got to watch it for free other than your Amazon Prime membership, of course. Whereas if you are a Disney Prime or a Disney Plus member, you had to pay, pay your Disney Plus membership plus you had to spend another $30. We used to joke, that's what the plus means in Disney Plus. Disney Plus, $30. Disney Plus, $30, and you get to watch Mulan. So it's not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. But if you want to translate that into real-world dollars, think of it like this. Mulan was set to be a blockbuster, a huge blockbuster. That's what they were expecting. This is going to be a film that probably opened to 150, 180. Now, this is all obviously pre-COVID estimates. But $150, $180 million opening weekend is what they're estimating, all this kind of stuff. And then, of course, COVID came along. At 1.1 million downloads, if you take into consideration that the average movie ticket in the United States is $10. In some places, like where I live in Los Angeles, it's more than that. In some places, it's less than that. But the average cost of a movie ticket in the United States is $10. You're talking about $11 million opening weekend for Mulan. And even if you take into consideration the $30, well, now you're talking about $33 million opening weekend for Mulan. But also with Borat, even at 1.6, if you take that $10 average ticket price into consideration, at 1.6, that means that Borat, if everybody who watched it on Amazon Prime also went out and bought a ticket for it if it had played in theaters. 
That would have meant a $16 million opening weekend. It would have meant a $16 million opening weekend. And that's if everybody who watched it for free on Amazon Prime would have gone out and bought a ticket to go see it. So, yay, it got 1.6 million viewers in its first weekend. Yay, it beat Disney Plus's Mulan. Yay. But really, at the end of the day, is that actually really a good number? Now, some, will, like myself, will make an argument that it could have actually done better in theaters. Because remember, one of the big things about movie theater going is, yes, going out to see the movies, but you're also buying a night out, right? That's the other thing about going to the movies. Uh, Chris Rock talked about this a few weeks ago, and, and he put it much better than I than I am. But, you know, going out to the movies isn't just about seeing the movie, although that's obviously the big main thing. You're also getting a night out. It's a night out with a date or friends or family or whatever. You're also getting that. So it is possible that it probably would have gotten a lot more viewers and a lot more eyeballs on it had it been in a movie theater, even though that seems a little bit counterintuitive. But it kind of is what it is. So, yeah, I'll be honest with you. I saw that 1.6 million uh, number, and I was surprised. It's That seems low. I was surprised how low that is, all things considered. Anyway, guys, and by the way, I love the movie. I thought it was absolutely here. Not quite as good as the first Borat film, but hilarious and worthwhile. Nonetheless, I really enjoyed it. Question is, guys, what do you think about these numbers? Are you surprised to see 1.6 million? Is that way below where you thought maybe it would be? Is it higher than where you thought it would be? What are your thoughts on this? And also, what did you think of Borat's subsequent movie film? Jump down into the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's now move on to main topic number two, shall we? And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Frank Wolf. And Frank Wolf writes, Greetings and salutations, John and Rob. Well, unfortunately, Rob's not here today. I'm a fan of the CW Batwoman series. Uh, it was sad that Ruby left the show. Of course, that's Ruby Rose who starred in the first season as Batwoman. It's sad that Ruby left the show, but honestly, you could kind of tell her heart wasn't in it. Did you see the new image of Javika? By the way, I should say this, Javika Leslie's name, it's one of those names that I have read a million times, but I've never actually heard somebody say the name. So I don't know if I'm pronouncing Javika's name correctly. Please correct. Please forgive me if I'm not. But Javika Leslie's new Batwoman suit. I think it looks great and can't wait to see her in the show. What did you think about the new suit? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, as many of you guys know, there was a big change with the Batwoman series, right? So we had Ruby Rose was Batwoman. I'm a fan of the CW show. So I gave the first couple of episodes of Batwoman a shot. It just didn't work for me. I'm not going to sit here and say it was terrible, but I gave it a shot. It just didn't work for me. And so I tuned out. No harm, no foul, no problem. Anyway, they later went on to announce that not only were they going to replace Ruby Rose, who departed the show, the lead character, they weren't just going to replace the actress. They were also saying it's going to be a brand new lead character, not just a new actress playing the character. It was going to be a brand new lead character. And that was Javika. Again, hopefully I'm pronouncing her name right. If I'm not, forgive me. Uh, Javika Leslie uh, who's going to be taking it over and she's going to be playing a new Batwoman. Now we got our first look today at the suit. Here's a good look at it here. So there's a look at the suit. 
there are a couple of differences because if you switch it over and look at Ruby Rose's suit, really at first glance, it doesn't look all that different aside from the hair. I mean, obviously the hair is a big change, but the suit itself doesn't look all that different. So I'll give you a chance again, take a look at this image, then take a look at the, the other image. So here's what the folks uh, over at Variety have to say about the differences in the suit. They wrote that the black and red outfit features various new differences that I couldn't tell upon first viewing, but most notably a new wig, that part we all, all saw, right? Totally new wig, get that. It's no longer red hair, but just kind of red highlights. Gone is the straight red hair as the new design swaps in curly hair with red streaks. Also new to the character are red gauntlets. I hadn't noticed that, but they're right. When I switched back, and took a look at the uh, the gauntlets. Ruby Rose's gauntlets were actually black with some red accent, but now actually the the uh, the gauntlets themselves are now red. So anyway, new the character of the red gauntlets and a new belt with the bat logo. Yep, the bat logo was not on Ruby's uh, costume at all. So that the bat logo on the belt was not on Ruby's costume. It's there now. Uh, with the bat logo, the laser etch suit has other differences as well, visible in the first looks offered by CW. I didn't notice many other different looks, to be honest with you. They were very, very minor looks. Now, what do I think about this outfit? Honestly, the outfit's not bad. The outfit's not bad. I got no problems with the outfit. I think it looks perfectly good. I thought it looked perfectly good when we, Ruby Rose wore it. I think it looks perfectly good now. It's not a bad for, especially for a CW show. Because, you know, CW doesn't often do great job. I mean, I love Black Lightning, but that's one of the worst costumes ever in any superhero property ever. But I still love the show. But this is a pretty good costume. Not bad. The hair, logical change. I mean, I guess that's a logical change that doesn't throw me at all. So that's fine. They still keep some continuity in there with the red highlights in it. So that's fine. Here's the problem, though. My, I'm not anticipating that this show is going to be any better than it was before. Now, granted, like the person who sent in the question, this is a show that obviously has its fans. And that's great. Uh, and I wish I was one of them. I, I, I want to like everything that I watch. When I go in to watch something, I'm hoping I'm going to like it. I mean, I think deep down, most of us are like that. But yeah, like I said, season one, the first iteration just didn't work for me. As long as you have the same showrunners, as long as you have the same writer writer's room, as long as you have the same mentality, swapping out a different actress and saying this is a different character, I'm not anticipating that's going to make the show much better. Now, that can be good news for people who already like the show. Like, if you like the show, I don't think you have to worry about it becoming a radically different feeling show and therefore maybe making you not like it anymore. I think if you like the show before, you'll probably like it as we go into season two. But uh, for me, if you didn't like season one, I'm not anticipating like it. But you know what? I ditched on Batwoman season one. I ditched after a few episodes. But I am going to give it another shot now that they got in a new lead character, and we'll see if it works any differently. I'm not anticipating it's going to work any differently, but I am going to give it give it a shot. Question is, guys, what do you think about the new look for Batwoman? I think the look is fine. I think the look is good. I just don't have a lot of faith in the people who make the show. But who knows? Maybe they'll surprise us. What do you guys think? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down... Let's move into main topic number three. 
And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Angel A. And Angel A writes, Hey, John and crew. So I just saw that Deadline is reporting that Netflix is developing a live-action Assassin's Creed TV series. As a longtime fan of the franchise and with the disappointment of the 2016 Assassin's Creed movie, I'm pretty excited for a Netflix series adaptation as I generally find Netflix series to be good. Are you excited for this? Did you enjoy the 2016 version? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And big news. This was the big news, at least to me. This was the big news of the day that has come out. Netflix is embarking on doing a brand new Assassin's Creed series. But it's more than just an Assassin's Creed series. Netflix is apparently working with Ubisoft. I believe that's the company to develop an entire shared, for lack of a better term, cinematic universe of Assassin's Creed that will transcend live-action series, animated, and anime. And they're distinct, making a distinction between those two. There's going to be an animated and an anime version of it. This is what the folks over at Deadline had to say about this. They said the following, Netflix is looking to build an Assassin's Creed TV universe. The streamer has entered into a content agreement with Ubisoft to develop live action animated and anime series based on the international best-selling video game franchise. The first series in development is an epic genre-bending live action adaptation. The series, executive produced by Ubisoft Film and Television's Jason Altman and Daniel Kreniak, is looking for a showrunner. Okay, so right now, they don't have a showrunner. That is obviously going to be the most important piece of this puzzle. Who is going to be the showrunner? In comparison terms, in television, the showrunner is kind of like the director in movies, right? The director is the one in charge of the movie. The directors are not really in charge of the TV shows. The showrunner is. And so who are they going to get to be the showrunner of this? That's the big question, and that's the part that's going to be kind of up in the air a little bit. So that's interesting. It's also interesting to note that Ubisoft has really been putting everything in gear. Ever since they started their film and television department, they've been getting things in gear. This is just, this Assassin's Creed thing is just the latest. Listen to this. Ubisoft and television slate of IP based on original film and TV projects in various stages of development and production include Tom Clancy's The Division for Netflix, Rabbids for Lionsgate, just Dance for Screen Gems, Beyond Good and Evil, also for Netflix, an independent Werewolves Within, which they don't have a distributor for yet, but they're developing that, and a few other projects as well. They've already hit the ground running, and they're doing a lot to get this thing going. All right, let's address the elephant in the room here. They have tried before to get an Assassin's Creed narrative on screen going before. 2016's Assassin's Creed with Michael Fassbender. This was a movie that for years leading up to it, like I believe they announced this in 2013 or early 2014. And for a couple of years, many of us looked to this upcoming Assassin's Creed movie with Michael Fassbender as being the great hope for video game movies. We looked at that because up until that point, all video game movies suck. Three rules in life, three things that are inescapable, three unshakable truths, death, taxes, video game movies suck. That's been unescapable. You can't get away from that. 
And we kind of look to two films, actually, Assassin's Creed and Warcraft. Remember that? And we said, that's it. That's going to be the year that breaks the curse of the video game to movie adaptations. That will be it. Assassin's Creed is great lore that you can translate into a movie easily. World of Warcraft is a sprawling, epic, popular mythology that you can tell almost any story in that you want. This is going to be great. What happened? Well, as far as World of Warcraft goes, I kind of like World of Warcraft. I know not a lot of people did, and even I will say it didn't end up being as good as I wanted it to be, but I, I enjoyed World of Warcraft. It, I felt like it actually took me to Azeroth, so there's that, but I didn't love it or anything like that, and a lot of people didn't like it at all. But Assassin's Creed, the movie, was one of the most unforgivable pieces of shite my eyes have ever had the displeasure of watching on a big screen. And I'm not using hyperbole here. It's an awful movie. Absolutely dreadful. Now, there were sparks of promise in it. But unfortunately, all those sparks of promise was whenever they were actually in the past. Because remember, a lot of the movie takes place in a dystopian kind of future thing. And then, like, you know, being consistent with the game, he's got these, you know, built-in genetic memories of his ancestors so he can go back. And Whenever he was back in time, the movie worked for me. Actually, I quite enjoyed it. The problem was such a small percentage of the movie actually took place in that time period that it was kind of nulled, you know, it was eradicated. It was left impotent because everything else about the movie was completely horrid, horrid garbage. So then what should we think about a movie? What should we think about a new movie version of Assassin's Creed? I have two reasons why I feel optimistic, all right? Two reasons to feel optimistic. Reason number one is I believe properties can learn from their mistakes, right? Your first time doing something will usually be the worst you ever do it, right? I mean, theoretically speaking. So here's hoping that, you know, the people who are going to be making this series for Netflix can now sit back and look at that Assassin's Creed movie and go, okay, here are some lessons of what we cannot do. And so I'm going to have some hope and optimism for this series because I think they have a tangible example in front of them of what not to do. So there's that. The other reason I feel optimistic is because of this. While I am traditionally pessimistic about Netflix original movies, because, I mean, like I said, for every one trial of the Chicago 7, there's 40 or 50 pieces of trash that they put out there. I feel it's completely different with their original series. Like most of the time, I got to say, when I sit down to watch a Netflix original series, I usually end up getting pretty engaged with it. There's, there's just something about Netflix's inability, I've always said making movies, making good movies is harder than making good TV. It absolutely is. But 
it's just kind of crazy that they traditionally do such a bad job with their original movies, but such a good job with their series. They really do. I mean, HBO is probably the best in the business at it, but Netflix is really close on their heels for putting out really quality series. I mean, if you want to look to a third reason to be optimistic, maybe you could say, oh, you know, it'll give more time to explore lore. But I mean, you can either tell a good story or you can't. But I'm going to feel optimistic about this. Now, I will withhold my judgment of how optimistic I'm going to feel about this until I hear who the showrunner is going to be, because that's going to be the biggest thing in all this. It doesn't matter if it's the Assassin's Creed property. It doesn't matter if it's the Pac-Man property. Unless you got the right storytellers in there, it's not going to work. So I choose to be optimistic about this right now, but I could either get super optimistic once we hear who the showrunner is, or maybe I can get a little bit more pessimistic. We'll have to wait and see. Question is for you guys. What do you think about this news? Not only of a live action Assassin's Creed series is coming to Netflix, but the fact that they're going to really sprawl this out and make an entire TV universe, including animation and a few other things. But what do you think about this live action thing right now? Do you have hope for it? Are you pessimistic about it? What do you think? Do you think this can wipe that terrible taste of the 2016 movie out of our mouths? Jump down into the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to our fourth and final main topic today. And our fourth and final main topic today gets submitted to us by Akash. And Akash writes, I just saw a trailer of The Midnight Sky, a sci-fi directed by George Clooney himself and is going to debut in December on Netflix. Looks promising. Uh, your take on it. Keep up the great work and be safe. All right, Akash, thank you so much for sending that in. And yeah, listen, one of the true Hollywood guys that's left out there, like who kind of embodies the, the epitome of the Hollywood movie star is George Clooney, who is also, by the way, one hell of a director, one hell of a director. And he now has a brand new movie coming out on Netflix. We were just talking about Netflix original movies, but he's got a new movie coming out on Netflix called Midnight Sky. And the sound of it is actually pretty interesting. This comes to us from the folks over at Cinema Blend who wrote in as a synopsis for it. You've got George Clooney playing a lone scientist inhabiting a snowy outpost with his young daughter. After some sort of event that has left Earth uninhabitable, he has to get a hold of the spaceship Ether, whose crew is about to return, return home from a spacebound voyage. Only they totally shouldn't come back as Earth is uninhabitable. The ship's crew is much safer where they are, and if Clooney's protagonist can just reach a more powerful antenna, they might just have a shot at surviving. All right, that is the synopsis given to us about Midnight Sky. So the trailer for this thing comes out today. Now, I had heard about this movie, and I had had some uh, familiarity with it. But I had kind of gone off my radar. I remember talking about this movie when it was first kind of announced. It might have been like eight months ago when the news about it first came out. It sounded interesting. So the trailer comes out. What do I think about the trailer? It's interesting. It's interesting. I saw some people pointing out that, you know, when you get a disaster movie, there's usually one of two types of disaster movies. One, disasters that take place in space where something goes terribly wrong in space and now the crew has got to fight to survive or disasters that take place on earth. Everybody's, you know, some kind of natural calamity is happening and everybody's got to try to survive. 
Watching the trailer for Midnight Sky, though, kind of shows that this movie is going to try to be both. It looks at the harrowing efforts of the crew off in space. And by the way, listen to this cast. Not only do you have George Clooney, you got Felicity Jones from Rogue One, and I just love her. So I'm looking forward to seeing her in this. Kyle Chandler, who is like the best A-list star that isn't actually A-list, and a lot of people don't know his name immediately, but the dude's incredible. I absolutely love him. David Oelua, uh, Damian Bashir, Mir Miriam Shore. There's a really good, and of course, on top of all that, George Clooney himself. This is an impressive sounding cast. But yes, yeah, so we've got two levels of calamity, right? We've got the spaceship team fighting survive, and we got the people on Earth. The whole idea that the Earth is a lost cause now. Earth's a lost cause. And like, it seems to me at least that George Clooney's Last gasp at his humanity is he's going to risk his life to get a warning to the people on that ship. Don't come home. Don't come home. Now, the trailer, I don't I think this is based on a book that I've never read, so I don't really know anything about the story. The trailer suggests that some sort of massive calamity happens to the earth and everything on the planet is changing. It's becoming frozen and he's got to try to tell people not come back. I'll say this. While there is certainly stuff here that sounds intriguing to me, and the and it is. I mean, the whole premise of this sounds great. And seeing George Clooney out there freezing to death kind of reminds me of the years I lived in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, where it would normally drop down to minus 40 degrees. I'm not kidding. Uh, minus 40. It would, would not be unusual in the winter to hit minus 40. Uh, but... While the premise of this sounds really good, and while I get excited about names like Bashir and Chandler and Felicity Jones and George Clooney and all that, I got to say, I didn't think the trailer was great. I didn't think the trailer was great. It seems to me, and the movie may be fantastic. You know, we've seen lots of great movies that had bad trailers, but it seems to me that when you describe this movie, it sounds like there you should have this incredible sense of tension. You should be on the edge of your seat. You should be sweating, thinking, how are they going to navigate this and all that kind of stuff. And quite frankly, I found the trailer rather dull. Now, that doesn't mean the movie's going to be dull. It just means that some marketing exec decided they wanted you know, the trailer to kind of send a certain message or whatever. T to me, it was the wrong message to send for a movie like this. So it is what it is for me. I didn't think the trailer was very good, although I got to say I'm excited about it. Now, obviously, the other little bit of pessimism for me is the fact that it is a Netflix original movie. More times than not, those don't turn out to be so good. But anyway, that's just my thoughts. Guys, the question is, what do you think about this trailer for Midnight Sky? And separate from that, what do you think about the sounds of this movie? I actually think it sounds pretty good, even though the trailer didn't really do it for me. What do you guys think? Jump down to the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With all of that down and out of the way, we are now going to move on and start taking your live comments and questions. And how do we take your live comments and questions? Well, once again, it's very simple. Simply use the tip link that's in the top of the description of this video or enter it in manually, streamelements.com slash movieblogdv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question on. And of course, you'll be supporting the show at the same time. All right. With that said, let's get into it and start taking your questions. 
And we are going to start things off with, if I'm in the right spot here, I think we are. We're going to start things off here with Zayian, who writes, Hey, John and Rob, who's not here today. Uh, just watched Trial of Chicago 7, currently my favorite movie of the year. Trial of Chicago 7 is currently my favorite movie of the year. I feel, um, uh, and, and On the Rock, starring Rashida Jones, and Bill Murray also stars in that, by the way. Rashida Jones and Bill Murray. Love Chicago 7. I feel that they showed the flaws of both sides, protesters and the system, making it not just one-sided. I liked On the Rocks. Good melodrama thoughts. I have not yet seen On the Rocks, which is crazy because I remember when, first of all, directed by Sofia Coppola and starring Bill Murray. These two have obviously worked very well together in the past, right? You throw on top of that Rashida Jones. I love Rashida Jones. So when I first saw the trailers and heard about On the Rocks, I thought, oh, I'm definitely watching that. But I haven't had a chance to actually watch it yet. I haven't had a chance to sit down and watch it yet. But I am looking forward to it. But as far as Trial of the Chicago 7 goes, like I said, it is actually my favorite movie of the year so far. I absolutely love that damn thing. All right. Thanks for that, man. All right. Jerome Smith the second writes. Dude, Khabib admitted he remembered all week Justin saying in interviews that he'd never tap out. That's why he switched from the armbar to a triangle choke mid-fight, putting him to sleep because he didn't want to hurt Justin in front of his parents. Wow. Yeah, I heard about that. Actually, I saw Daniel Cormier, the former heavyweight champion, talking about that. So we're obviously talking about the big super fight that happened uh, this past weekend. Uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov, the greatest hand-to-hand -hand combat fighter of all time. Easy, bar none, no questions asked. He is the GOAT. Um, he beat Justin Gaethje very easily with a triangle choke. And it was funny when you watch the end of the fight, he was transitioning. He had several submissions available to him and he was going to go for an arm bar. And then you suddenly see, he decided to switch it up and he went to the legs around the head, clamping down on his own heel, uh, with a triangle choke and put Justin to sleep. And later it got revealed that he did that because he didn't want to hurt Justin Gaethje. Like Justin Gaethje and, and Habib actually have a ton of respect for each other. And unlike a lot of MMA fights where here, guys talking, oh, I hate that guy. I hate that. They actually really have a lot of respect for each other. And Habib just decided, you know, his family, he's here to watch it. I don't want to injure him. And I'm just going to put him to sleep. And then he'll be fine, right? I heard that. And it's like, look, when you're a UFC fighter and you're in there against like one of the most violent people on the planet and Justin Gaethje, you just win whatever way you can. The fact that Nurmagomedov is so much better than everybody else on the planet that he just decided to pick how he was going to win the fight was kind of crazy and also very, very classy. Uh, very, very classy of him. That, that was a really cool story to hear. Thanks for sharing that, Jerome. All right. Willow writes. It's hard for you to believe at times that most of the people that appear in Borat are real-life Americans and not scripted actors. The little jab that the movie took at our prime minister in the beginning was also cracked. I won't, won't give it away, but they took a little jab at the Canadian prime minister as well, which was really funny, I got to say. I personally really like our Canadian prime minister, but they took a little jab at him, and it was pretty funny. I got to say it was pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the most brilliant things about Borat, though both the first movie and the second movie. It's just Borat. It's Sasha Baron Cohen just basically taking it, holding up a mirror to us, holding up a mirror to us and saying, look at yourselves. And, and I think there are things in there for all of us, me included, to be a little bit uncomfortable with about what I see in that reflection, right? 
And that is one of the most brilliant things that they do. So, yeah, it is kind of crazy, Willow. All right. Ryan Lohner writes, something tells me James Gunn's carte blanche on Suicide Squad is on the same level as, oh, sure, Ryan Johnson, you absolutely uh, can make Ray not related to anyone important. Well, I mean, come on, right? I mean, that's that's that discussion was put to bed a long time ago. Ryan Johnson didn't make it so that Ray wasn't related to anybody important. J.J. Abrams made it so that Ray wasn't related to anybody important. It's been documented. I mean, it's it's in JJ's interviews. It is in um, uh, uh, Ridley um, Ridley's interviews. It's in it's in multiple interviews. When they did the Force Awakens, JJ Abrams made it very clear, and it, that Ray was not related to anybody. And as a matter of fact, he even did this big interview where he where he explained why it was important to him that Ray not be related to anybody. And Daisy Ridley confirmed that, yeah, when we were shooting The Force Awakens, J.J. communicated that Ray ultimately is not related to anybody. And so, but this fake rumor started going, this fake thing started going around that it was Ryan Johnson that changed that. No, it wasn't. You don't have to like the movie Ryan Johnson made, but be mad at the things that are legitimate to be mad about, not this. It was J.J. Abrams that, is, that set at the beginning that Ray wasn't uh, related to anybody. Ryan Johnson didn't change that. That, that was actually that's one of the, that's one of the small things that Ryan Johnson actually stayed consistent with with what J.J. was planning on doing. So there was that. All right, next up, uh, Fred Lambert writes. Hey, John, love the show from Montreal. Oh, thanks a lot. I love Montreal. I love the old quarter. There's a restaurant in the old quarter, at least there was about 10 years ago, called the International Cafe. That oh was so good. Anyway, uh, hi, John. Love the show from Montreal. I just want to thank you for putting Sons of Anarchy on my radar. The music, great acting, the surprises, and the masterful ending made it one of my favorite shows of all time. Dude, it makes my heart smile hearing you say that Sons of Anarchy is in my top three all-time favorite shows. My number one all-time favorite show is Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica. That, to me, is the greatest television show ever made. And then, in no particular order, two and three, I don't know which one gets two and which one gets three, but so in no particular order is Sons of Anarchy and Spartacus. Uh, those are, and those, Sons of Anarchy, I mean, I remember... When I first saw the previews for Sons of Anarchy, I'm like, ah, some cheap little, ooh, it's a show about a motorcycle gang. Ooh, look at how tough we are. Like, I thought, oh, that's this looks lame. And I cannot honestly remember what got me to sit down and actually watch the first couple of episodes. Maybe it was the fact that Ron Perlman was in it because I really like Ron Perlman. Anyway, I honestly can't remember what it was specifically that made me, convince me in my own head to actually give this Sons of Anarchy show a shot. But I'm so glad I did because it became one of my favorite shows of all time. And I'm really glad you got turned on to it, man. Thanks for sharing that, dude. All right, next up. Zach is nobody, writes. James Gunn being given the green light to kill off any character may be because the current main DC movie universe is going to all change anyway with Flashpoint. And they could bring those characters back soon if they desire to do so. Well, I mean, that's a massive assumption, right? That's a massive assumption. If you really go back to DC fandom and watch everything, like there are a lot of people that are just assuming the entire DCU is about to be reset with Flashpoint. They don't actually say that. So 
it, it may be connected. It may not be. We'll have to wait and see. But of course, what Zach is referring to is one of our topics on yesterday's show was the fact that James Gunn revealed that when he decided to go with Warner Brothers and he decided he wanted to do Suicide Squad, Warner Brothers gave him a complete blank check. They said, do whatever you want to do with the movie. That even means killing characters. You can kill whatever character you want. And he even specified that that included Harley Quinn. He could kill Harley Quinn if he wanted to. So what does that mean long-term? We're going to have to wait and see, but like Zach, your theory is as good as any theory I have right now. So let's wait and see. All right. Carlos Sosa writes, Hey John, will you be getting the new PS five? Miles Morales game looks great. I am going to get the new PS five. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, if I wasn't going to get it already, even though I actually don't play my consoles very much because I'm terrible. Let me see if I can pull this over here. I absolutely suck at using one of these things. I like 95% of my gaming is done on a PC with a mouse and keyboard. There is some sort of negative mutation I was born with in my brain that simply will not allow me to properly be able to play a game with a, a console controller. And believe me, I try. Now, I've got this here connected to my computer right now because for whatever reason, maybe because it's very simple controls, you know that video game Fall Guys? I actually play a little bit of Fall Guys. And for whatever reason, it's like the one game I've ever played that I actually find easier to play with a console controller than with a mouse and keyboard. So I really do like Fall Guys. Um, but other than that, so yeah, I am going to get the PS5. I was going to get it anyway. But then they showed the trailer for that new Harry Potter game. It's almost, it kind of feels like a World of Warcraft set in a Harry Potter universe. I can't remember the name of it. But my wife, who is a major Potterhead, she was sitting there with me as the preview for that Potter game came up. And she just looked at me and she goes, we're getting a PS5. I'm like, no problem, honey. Whatever you say, you're the boss. You want a PS5? We're getting a PS5. So yes, I will be getting it. And that's, that game there is probably the main reason for it. Uh, let's see here. Next up, uh, Preston the Kryptonian writes, John, uh, not only did I learn that Jamie Foxx's sister died recently. Oh, I did not know that. That's horrible. Uh, thoughts and prayers for his family. But I also learned that one of my coworkers knew Jamie and his sister growing up in Terrell, Texas. Anyway, keep up the good work. I did not know that. Oh, that's terrible. Hold on a second. Let me... Let me just see if I can. Yeah, it was a, it was a day ago. Jamie Foxx's sister uh, passes away oh, at 36. At 36. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's so sad to hear. That's so sad to hear. I did not know about that. Thanks for sharing that, man. That's terrible to hear. Um, all right. Next up, Preston also writes, on the subject of Jamie Foxx, I just rewatched Baby Driver last weekend with a friend, and I actually liked it better the second time around. Good acting, smart casting, well-paced and unpredictable. Definitely one of my favorites of 2017. Dude, I love Baby Driver. I love Baby Driver. Uh, what Edgar Wright Edgar Wright continues to impress me because, you know, just when you think he's great, but he's just great at the genre stuff, you know, whether it's Shaun of the Dead or, 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 or Scott Pilgrim, like really, you know, to the side genre stuff. Then he comes out and does kind of a mainstream action thriller. 
and Baby Driver. And it was kind of different from anything else I've seen Edgar Wright do before. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And it just made me appreciate Edgar Wright even more. Now, I will admit, you know, with everything that's gone on with Kevin Spacey, it it was about four or five months ago. I was sitting down and just going through some, I, I decided, you know, me and I were going to settle in for the evening. I was just going to pick a movie to watch. And I came across Baby Driver. And my first thought was, oh, yeah, I haven't watched Baby Driver since like I last time I saw it in theaters. I was going to hit on it. And then I felt weird because of the Kevin Spacey thing, which is kind of unfair because everybody else who worked on that movie is totally fine. And so I don't know. It was weird, which is also really weird because I have no issues going back and say watching uh, Usual Suspects. And, and what was it? There was another one that he did that I, I watched about a year or so ago with Kevin Spacey. It wasn't American Beauty. Um, it was another one, and I had no problem watching. But for some reason, clicking on or the thought of clicking on Baby Driver made me recoil a bit. Probably It's probably ridiculous that I did. No, no need for that. But anyway, Baby Driver is fantastic. Jamie Foxx is terrific in it. Um, Lily James, go and watch it if you have not seen that movie yet. It is really incredible. Edgar Wright keeps saying he's going to do a sequel. We just keep waiting around until we actually hear him doing a sequel. Uh, Van Helsing is underrated. Oh, that's a bad movie. Uh, writes, for $600 million, if I'm Netflix, I'd counter with $700 million for the entirety of Eon. Oh, that's idiotic. <laughs> that's completely idiotic. Uh, they'd have an entire Bond movies catalog um, category, LOL, plus the rights to make Bond movies or even streaming shows too. I'd say that's worth the price tag and it'd bail uh, Eon out. Eon doesn't need bailing out. But listen, okay, look, this reminds me a lot of sports fans of, of their team that say, oh, our team should trade. Let's say, let's go all time. Let's say basketball fan. Well, our team, we've got this terrible guard who just, he's like sits on the bench all the time. Why don't they trade him for LeBron James? Why don't my team should train that 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 guard who's a bench warmer? They should trade him to the LA Lakers for LeBron James. Yeah, they should do that. Okay, that's great. Except the LA Lakers would never make that trade. <laughs> that's just absolutely idiotic. If if the James Bond franchise is saying, "Oh, streaming networks, you want to talk to us about getting James Bond No Time to Die on your streaming network?" Conversation starts at six hundred million dollars which is way more than Netflix or Apple are, are willing to spend. So they walked away. But if their mindset is the conversation starts at 600 million, you think for 100 million more, they're going to give you the James Bond catalog. I don't think so. Now you're talking in the neighborhood of 1.5, 1.9 billion dollars, maybe two, maybe 2.5 on the high end. So that's great. Hey, yeah, if I'm Netflix, $700 million for all the Bond films. That's great, but they'll never take it. Any more than the Lakers are going to be willing to trade you LeBron James for a bench-warming guard. It's just not going to happen. So, no, that's that's just not something that's going to happen, Van Helsing. Uh, you know what? Damn it, it's got Hugh Jackman. Maybe I should give the Van Helsing movie another shot someday. I just remember hating it, like, a lot. Anyway, Campia Crystal Lake writes, 
Uh, fun Animaniacs fact. I'm so excited about the Animaniacs coming back. Uh, the voice of Wacko, Jess Harnell, is the lead singer in an amazing mashup band called Rock Sugar. Uh, look up Don't Stop the Sandman. Uh, you are welcome. Unrelated, this season of Fargo and the new series Utopia have been crazy good. You know what? Fargo, uh, Utopia is a show I try to watch because I've become uh, a Zendaya fan. I've become a fan of hers. It's it's taken some time, but I really have. I've been more and more impressed with her work and whatever. So I heard a lot of people talking about Utopia. Um, oh, you know what? I'm I'm thinking of Euphoria. I'm thinking of Euphoria. That's what I'm thinking of. Hold on a second. Which one is Utopia? Is that the one with Rain Wilson? Hold on a second. Utopia. Um, is that the new that new one with Rain? Uh, yes, it is. And John Cuse. Okay, I have not seen that yet. I have not seen Utopia yet, but it does look crazy to me. And I do want to check it out. Fargo. I was going to about Euphoria. I was going to say, I tried, I watched the first three or four episodes of Euphoria and it just, I don't know. It just didn't click for me. I wasn't enjoying myself watching it. So whatever. I, I, I kind of tapped out on it. Um, Fargo is a show that for years, so many people have told me it's really good. And it's, it's really wonderful. I've heard nothing but good things about it. And this year, uh, where I, I they got crit, where I was mentioning Chris Rock or Chris Rock is in it. I mean, it just looks totally different. And yet I've never seen a single episode. I, unless I'm forgetting it, I don't believe I've seen a single episode of Fargo. That is a show that I've got a couple of shows kind of in a Rolodex in my head about Holy crap, when's the last time anybody used a reference to Rolodexes? Anyway, uh, that's a show that I've got kind of on a rotating Rolodex in my head that one of these days I need to sit down and watch this show. And that is definitely one of them. So thanks for giving me the uh, thanks for giving a recommendation to that one. All right. Next up, uh, Dark Knight Rises writes, hey, John. What are your favorite movies about political campaigns like Redford's The Candidate, which is great, Richard Gere and Sidney Lumet's Power, any others uh, you'd recommend? There is one, uh, it's, I think it's called Ides of March that I really liked. Hold on a second. Let me just look this up. Uh, Ides of March with Ryan Gosling and George Clooney, if I'm thinking of the right one. Yes, there it is. Um, oh, why did it suddenly disappear? Hold on a second. Ides of March. Is it going to? Yeah, there it is. Ides of March. Let me bring this up on uh, on the screen here so you guys can know what I'm talking about. I really like this film. Um, the synopsis reads, an idealistic staffer for a new presidential candidate gets a crash course on dirty politics during his stint on the campaign trail. So it's George Clooney, Ryan Gosling. Who else was in that, by the way? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, that's right. Philip Seymour Hoffman, Paul Giamatti, Evan, Evan Rachel Wood, Marissa Tomei, Jeffrey Wright. Are you kidding me? On and on and on. Listen to that cast. This movie's really good. I like this. This was the first movie that gave me an opportunity to uh, interview Ryan Gosling, too, as a good Canadian kid. But Ides of March is actually one that really. And of course, then there's Dave. Let me see if I can see. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, not I want Dave the movie. Dave Chappelle, come on. I can't find it. Anyway, Dave, uh, about the the lookalike, Kevin Klein becomes the lookalike. Let me see if I, uh, Kevin, how do you spell Klein's last name? There it is. 
Let me see if Dave will be on one of his first recommended ones. There it is, Dave with Sigourney Weaver. Now, if you guys have never seen Dave, here's the official synopsis. To avoid a a potentially explosive scandal, when the U.S. president goes into a coma, an affable temp agency owner with an uncanny resemblance is put in his place. So there's this president of the United States played by Kevin Klein, who's actually an awful person. And he goes into a coma under scandalous circumstances. But so what the White House staff does is so that people don't find out about it. They find this other guy named Dave, who is like the spitting image of the president and actually does like presidential impersonations from time to time. And they actually think they can pass him off as the president. And so they bring him to the White House and they even fool the first lady who's Sigourney Weaver for a little, just for a little bit. They even fool her. Um, it's funny. It's inspiring. It's a kind of great. Now, I know that's not really a, a campaign movie, but uh, I like that. But anyway, so the, the two that come to mind quickly for me are Ides of March and Dave. Those, those are the ones that comes to mind for me. I do love Dave, man. I love that movie. All right. Uh, let's see here. Next up, Orange Handwrites. Speaking of HDR, that's high dynamic range. It's also important when it comes to quality CGI in film slash TV, as you'll often see behind the scenes videos uh, with that mirrored ball to capture a lighting reference for CG elements, especially for characters like Gollum and the Transformers. Listen, when it comes to any kind of compositing, what is compositing? Okay, so compositing is the basic idea of when you take one picture and put it on top of another picture. That's compositing, right? So let's say you take a cutout picture of me and then put me on, say, a different background, right? Make it look like, say, I'll take this picture here. Now you take that picture, cut me out, and then put me on a picture on the beach and make it look like I'm hanging out on the beach. And clearly, by my white pasty skin, you can tell I don't hang out on the beaches a lot, but you put me on the beach. So compositing is also a key thing in all CGI, layering one thing on top of another. The key thing to compositing, the one thing that will give away a composite image faster than anything else, that somebody can actually look at it and tell, this isn't a real picture, this was photoshopped, or this is fake CGI, whatever. The main thing I learned a long time ago working in a CGI company is lighting. It's lighting. That's the first thing that will tell the human eye something's wrong here. And that's the mistake most people normally make. So if I'm sitting here right now, like you can see the little bit, see on my forehead here, there's a little bit of a hot spot right there from the light hitting it. Okay, so you can tell, if I hold up my, my hand here, you can see, see I'm blocking a light source, right? If you put me in an image, it's clear that my face is showing that the main light source is coming from here. But if you put me on a beach, where like the light source is coming from the opposite side, that will tell the human eye quickly, something's wrong here. Something's wrong here. And maybe it'll take you a few minutes to figure out it's the light source, but your human eye and your brain will instantly feel it. There's something off about this picture. The lighting and where light is coming from. So when you're compositing CGI characters into a live action environment, one of the main pieces of information they have to get for the, for the compositing artist, for the CGI artist, is light. Exactly where is light coming from in this environment? 
so that when you composite in your CGI character, or you composite in your model, or you composite in your image, whatever it is, you can perfectly match up the light sources coming from the same directions. The temperature of the light sources, the color of the light sources, the radiance of the light sources, all that kind of stuff. How many nits is the light sources? All that. All plays into it. So absolutely orange hand. You are 100% uh, right on that. 100%. All right. Next up, uh, John Klobucker writes, one of my favorite moments in the MCU was when Hulk came toe-to-toe -to -toe with Thanos. Not only was it a tense moment, but it was also a great introduction to Thanos. It was. It was a because yeah, my one problem, and I love the Russo brothers, and I love what they have done in the MCU. Make no mistake about it. But the one thing that I really dislike about what the Russos did in the MCU was they completely neutered Hulk. They turned Hulk into this passive, unimportant side character. You know, early in the MCU, the Hulk was the nuclear option. Like, that's the thing everybody had to tiptoe around, was we got to be careful of Hulk. He is the ultimate, ultimate nuclear bomb. Like even one of the things, the whole point of Loki thing was to get the monster in their midst, right? <clears throat> and to unleash the monster. And then the Russos took him and they instantly neutered him. Now, that first scene in Infinity War with Thanos was great because you legitimately have Hulk going toe to toe with Thanos Landing, I mean, going, getting into MMA things, landing some good shots. He controlled the center of the octagon. He maintained position. He landed some heavy shots, all that kind of stuff. And then Thanos come back. That was great to do because if you're trying to introduce Thanos to the audience as the ultimate threat, especially with that damn Infinity Gauntlet on his hand, as if you're trying to introduce him to the audience as the ultimate threat, Show him going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Hulk. Now, unfortunately, after that one moment, the Russos just treated Hulk like some injured kitten, and he never he never hulked out. I mean, really, at that last battle in Endgame, the fact that Hulk was on the battlefield should have been like one of the key major waves, but we saw Hulk throw one or two punch. Any anyway, I'm not gonna get sidetracked on that. But yes, that introduction scene I think was good for Hulk because you see him landing some heavy shots on Thanos, but you get to see Thanos truly establishing himself as the ultimate alpha. He is the apex predator in the universe that you're about to get for the next two movies. And nothing did that more effectively than having him fight Hulk. It was a great intro. It was a great intro. All right. Tom Gillard writes, Hey, John, I noticed that the title topic of your shows is always the final main topic to be discussed. I assume this is intentional. My question is, why do you do it this way? Um, it's not always that. Like, for instance, today, today's a great example. Our title topic is the um, uh, uh, Assassin's Creed topic, right? But it was topic number three, not topic number four. So it's not always that way. It's not always that way. I do intentionally... Try to put it towards the end of the show. The main reason is because a lot of people don't, don't join the show till later on, and I don't want them to miss it. Yesterday was a great example. Like yesterday, we had a breaking piece of news 
of course, that Oscar Isaac has been cast to play Moon Knight in the upcoming Marvel Disney Plus show, right? And so Rob and I talked about it for a good six or seven minutes. But then later in the show, I keep looking down at the um, uh, at the live chat board, and I still see people putting in, guys, did you hear breaking news? Oscar Isaac is going to be that. And I'm like, yeah, we talked about that earlier. So I know that the main topic of the show will probably be the main thing that people are coming to hear us talk about. So I want to make sure that people don't miss it if they're not there right at the beginning of the show. So that's kind of the main reason why I kind of, I usually push it to the last half of the show. Oftentimes it's the final topic, not always the final topic like today, but I just want to make sure people don't miss out on the thing they're coming to mostly to hear about. So there's that. All right. Thank good question. Go good observation, Tom. All right. Next up, Mike Hawksmull writes, uh, WRT bad guys winning, uh, Thanos won. Uh, events from original universe remain unchanged. The Avengers create slash run away to the only parallel universe where he didn't MCU own explanation. Do you think MCU will ignore this plot hole moving forward in the multiverse? I I'm honestly, I'm not following you, Mike. I'm not quite sure what it is you're saying. Unfortunately, let me read through one time. Uh, events from the original universe remain unchanged. The Avengers create and run away to the only parallel universe where he didn't MCU own explanation do you think mcu will ignore this plot hole moving again i'm not really sure i'm following what you're saying i feel bad about that somebody takes the time sends in a question I'm, I'm not quite getting what it is you're saying or asking i apologize for that mike i really do i'm sorry about that hey but listen if any of you guys watching live or even if you're not watching live if you're watching this later and you've got a sense of what mike what it is mike's asking why don't you fire an answer down into the comments section in the live chat that would be that's why it's not just this idiot sitting here it's a whole bunch of all of us idiots getting to share our thoughts and opinions together thanks for sending it in mike anyway an anonymous viewer writes in can we agree that there is no better timeline continuity than this is us I mean, the casting is incredible. Every character in every timeline is believable from mannerisms down to birthmarks. I feel like I'm really watching their younger selves. Yeah. Listen, this is us. I now listen, full disclosure. I haven't seen the latest season. I didn't watch the last season, but uh, my wife was obsessed with that show. So it was always on my TV. It is the way this is us constantly jump between time periods. It they did a I, again. I haven't seen the last season, but from what I saw, they did a masterful job of really keeping everything completely consistent. Because when you're jumping time frames from when they're children to when they're teens to when they're adults, and single storylines will constantly be jumping back and forth between those three, sometimes four time periods back when they were babies. Um. It can get out of hand real easy, real fast. And that is a show that did a tremendous job of that. So yeah, that is a really impressive thing. And good on you, Anonymous, for pointing that out. Dwayne Jackson writes, Hey, John and family. If the doomsday scenario continues through 2021 without theaters being open, will studios consider merger options? If they merge, how does that affect future projects going forward? Or will everything be pushed to 2022? Oh, no, absolutely. Listen, Rob and I kind of discussed this a little bit yesterday ourselves. I do not believe at all, and I'm not just being optimistic. This this is not a scenario that's going to go through all of 2021. It's just not. But I said yesterday, 
if the type of scenario we've been in for the last seven months, like continues all the way through to through 2021 as well, where no movie theaters are opening, blah, blah. Number one, the movie theaters will not survive. To me, it's already a question mark if they will even still be able to survive to February or March. Like it, it's a it's a coin toss to me if they can survive to February or March. If they can survive until the movies start coming out again, the movie theater industry will be fine. But I'm just not sure they're going to survive until that point. There is no way they survive all the way through 2021. They can't do it. But it's not just them. It's the movie studios are getting their balls kicked. I mean, the studios are getting hefty kicked in the balls right now. And yeah, absolutely. One of the things I said yesterday, that'll be one of the things you're going to start seeing doing is some studios closing, other studios having to merge. Like we just can't survive. Hey, Studio A, why don't you come join us, Studio W, and we'll merge and tens of thousands of people will lose their jobs, but we'll merge and with our combined resources and efforts, we'll be able to survive this. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of stuff like that. A lot of weird things are going to happen if, and I don't think it will, but if this stretches through all of 2021, you're going to see stuff like that happen. All right, next up, Dwayne Jackson writes again. Hello, John and family. The rut we are in, how do you teach and educate those who scream freedom and refuse to wear a mask? Because those are the ones that are really keeping us from the nice things. Uh, how do you educate somebody who refuses to listen to facts and logic? You can't. You just can't. It's like trying to argue with people who like flat earthers that you just can't fundamentally when you're, when you're dealing with people and this isn't a political thing, because I believe me, I have uh, some friends who lean very politically left and they just don't get it. When you have people who are so fundamentally selfish, like in their worldview, this is them this is the universe, right? When you have people who are so fundamentally selfish and so clueless, logic and facts doesn't matter. Logic and facts just doesn't matter. And there's no, they're just idiots and there's no talking to them. And it, it is what it is. There's just no changing their minds. It doesn't matter how many people die. It just doesn't matter how many people die. They're just going to be stupid. And uh, it is what it is. And I, I, like I said, that stupidity stretches from the left to the right. I mean, it is, it just is what it is. And it's unfortunate, but there is no educating them. So I just don't talk to them. It's just kind of that simple. All right. RIP Joey Moss writes Edmonton Oilers. Oh, I heard about this. Edmonton Oilers longtime locker room attendant, Joey Moss passed away at 57 years. No one's saying, Oh, Canada with more passion than he did a true Oiler legend. And he was for those of you who've never heard. And unless you're an Edmonton Oiler fan, you probably have not heard of him. Joey Moss, back in the days, like in the 80s, when Wayne Gretzky, maybe the greatest professional, the most dominant professional athlete maybe of all time. I, I don't know that any professional athletes ever dominated their sport like Wayne Gretzky did. Anyway, back in the 80s, uh, Wayne Gretzky was there. He wasn't married yet, and he was dating this one girl. And she had a brother with Down syndrome. Sounds a little bit like the setup for um, uh, All About Mary, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit like a setup for All About Mary. Anyway, Wayne Gretzky was dating this girl while he was on the Oilers, and she had a brother with Down syndrome. 
And that was Joey Moss. And Wayne Gretzky went to the Oilers and said, hey, let's let's hire him as, as a locker room attendant. And so the Oilers hired him as a locker room attendant. And he instantly became beloved by the Oilers community. And he had been there ever since. And not only the Oilers community, all of Edmonton, because he also then, I believe, became a locker room attendant for like the Edmonton Eskimos, the Canadian football team. And uh, he was just beloved and he passed away and all these great NHLers and whatever have been posting social media about their condolences on, on his passing. And they would even, they let him sing the national anthem and it was just, everybody loved him. Everybody loved him. I was really, really sad to, to read about that. Thanks for putting that in there. Um, all right. Brian O'Connor writes, uh, in North Virginia, AMC is excluding certain films from their A-list and discount matinee programs. So I can't see Total Recall using A-list. Sad. I love AMC deeply, but hope we don't get to the point where we can't use A-list for anything anymore. Be safe. Well, I don't know what's going on in Virginia. I, I don't believe I can. you can use AMC A-list at all. Like my AMC A-list is frozen right now, which is great. That's exactly what I want it to be. I want it to be frozen. I don't want to be paying for A-list right now when there's not movies in theaters that I would be using my A-list to go to, right? Anyway, um. A-list is going to be a very, very important thing. Listen, the movie theater industry right before the pandemic hit was going through a major metamorphosis, a major metamorphosis. Like to a lot of people, oh yeah, AMC introduced this new little A-list program. Oh yeah, Regal started this little AMC, uh, this little Regal Unlimited plan. You, you don't get it. This was a century old industry going through the biggest change, the biggest metamorphosis that this century-old industry had ever been through, the fundamental change of a ticket system to a subscription-based system. Because that's what Regal Unlimited and AMC A-List and all these other, you know, a Regal Cineworld with their plan, whatever, that's what these things are. These are moving from an individual ticket-based system to a monthly subscription-based system. It is the most fundamental change the movie theater industry had ever gone through. And they were right in, in the middle of making that big transition. And AMC A-List was starting to make money for AMC. AMC has spent far too much money and resources into getting that program going. AMC A-List will absolutely be a part of AMC if it can survive. And it will absolutely be a part of it. But right now is not normal circumstances. And so you're not going to see, like I said, for me, I don't even know that I can use A-list even if I wanted to. And I understand that. That's fine right now. So it's not odd to think that under these completely unusual circumstances that we can't use certain programs as we would under normal circumstances, right? But make no mistake, if AMC and Regal and whatever can survive, and survive until all the movies start coming out again, these things will absolutely still be a part of it because that is the future of the cinematic, of the theatrical industry. It's the transition to subscription-based services. There will always be individual tickets you can buy, for sure. But the movie theaters realize the future of this stuff is subscription-based service. And it's brilliant. It's the best thing that's ever happened to movie fans, in my opinion. But yeah, don't worry. It'll still be there if the theaters survive. It will still be there. 
let's see. Uh, moving on. Uh, Mischievous Gremlin writes, Hey, John, I wasn't a fan of the Michael Fassbender Assassin's Creed movie. Not a fan is putting it lightly for me, my friend, uh, because I felt that a TV series is the best way to go about that type of series. You can explore the lore more and you can actually turn it into an anthology series if you wanted to. See, I, I don't agree with that mentality. You can either tell a story or you can't. Having more episodes to tell it doesn't really change it. If you fundamentally can't tell your story, like because anything you can say, like let's take The Godfather, for example. You could say, let's say The Godfather was never made into a movie, but we all know the story of Godfather. You could legitimately have a lot of people saying, you can't possibly do Godfather as a movie. You've got 60 years of history in that movie. From the Corleones coming over and the development of the family and all the dynamics with all the different mobsters and how it all coalesces. And then the shooting of Don Corleone and then Michael, like he's like he's this young kid who's gone off to war. You're going to cover in one movie, Michael, who's kind of the white sheep of the family, not the black sheep of the family, but the white sheep of the family. Uh, who's this war hero off to war while the whole criminal enterprise is getting going in America and growing to prominence. And then he comes back and he's neutral in all of that. And then all the stuff happens with his dad. And somehow Michael finds himself, not his older brothers. He finds himself being thrust in the position of having to carry things for his dad to then getting the thing where he is, becomes the ultimate Don. You can't do that in one movie. You need a couple of seasons of TV to properly do that. Well, guess what? They did do it as a movie. And it's one of the greatest movies. Some people argue it is the greatest movie of all time. And they did it as a movie. The problem with the, I reject the notion personally that the problem with the Michael Fassbender 2016 um, Assassin's Creed was the fact that it, it should have been a series. If you would take that, if you took that steaming piece of crap and you stretched it over eight episodes, it just would have been eight episodes of steaming crap. It, it wouldn't have changed it. You can, you're either telling a good story or you're not. You know what I mean? Now, all this tells me, like, the amount of lore that is in um, Assassin's Creed, <clears throat> all that does for me is says, hey, there is enough lore there to justify a series. It doesn't tell me that it's better suited as a series, though. I don't think there's I don't think it's a matter of is a movie a best outlet for it or is a series a best outlet for it. I think a skilled storyteller can make a terrific two hour and 15 minute movie out of Assassin's Creed. Brilliant, even. But there's also enough lore there that you can make a good eight episode season as well. And maybe another season. Both can work. Both can fail. But the success or failure of it is not about whether or not you choose to go this route with a two hour and 15, two hour and 20 minute movie or this route with an eight episode season. It's about, do you have the right storytellers on board? Do you have them on board? There's certainly enough there that you can do it in a series and it can be great. But the story is also rich enough that you can tell it in a two hour movie and make it great. It's just about, do you tell the story well or not? And if you don't tell the story well, you can do 25 episodes and it's just going to be 25 episodes of crap. And you can do one two and a half hour movie and it's just going to be two and a half hours of crap. But you get the right storytellers on board with the right idea for it. 
you can have an Emmy winning show or an Oscar winning movie. So to me, that's where it really comes down to. But yes, there's definitely enough lore there that you can stretch this into a series. Absolutely, you can. All right. OC's on fire, but I'm okay, writes. Hey, John, if the theaters don't return to normal, could that help uh, cement Endgame's box office reign over Avatar? Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, because look, remember, we talked about this before as I refill my uh, my cola here. Right now, Avengers Endgame is the all-time box office champ, but it's only got it, it only leads Avatar by like this much. Like it's laughable how small the amount is that it leads Avatar. So what was going to happen, and if the theaters come back, what will happen is Disney is going to re-release Avatar. It'll make a little bit of money, but that's going to be more than enough for it to take back the all-time number one box office position of all time. And then Disney can say, when Avatar 2 is ready to come out, come and see the sequel to the highest grossing box office film of all time. It's all about marketing. It's all about marketing. So if the theaters come back, you will see Avatar become the number one box office film of all time again. And then what will happen after that is whenever Disney is ready to do Avengers 5, sometime before Avengers 5, Disney will then take their other big movie, Avengers Endgame, and they'll re-release it into theaters for a limited time so that when Avengers 5 comes out, they'll see, come see the follow-up film to the biggest box office film of all time. It's all marketing. So Disney is going to play this game of hopscotch with their biggest movie of all time between Avatar and Endgame to use it as a marketing tool, to use it as a marketing tool. But yes, if the theaters don't reopen, then Avatar can never retake that throne. But when they do reopen, that's what Disney's going to do. Avatar will be the number one film in uh, all time box office film again. And then later Endgame will take it back again. And then they might do it again when the next half, when Avatar 3 comes out and they'll just continue to play this game. So we'll have to see how that all goes. All right, next up. Uh, let's see. Ben Rayner writes, Hey, John, I saw the new Batwoman suit. Looks good, but I'm still bummed out. It feels like a soft reboot rather than a continuation from season one. Makes me feel gutted. I'm hoping for some resolution, but I get the feeling there won't be any. I I'll tell you what, Ben, that I am interested to see what's going to happen with this Batwoman show. Will it feel like a fundamentally different show? Will I enjoy it this time? Because frankly, I, I didn't really like it uh, the last time I tried to watch it. But I've always thought it's a really curious thing that, like, look, you can swap the actor out. That's fine. I just thought it was a very curious decision that they were not only swapping out the actor, they were swapping out the lead character entirely. Batwoman is now a completely different character. There's a different character now that puts on the bat outfit. It's not it's not just not Ruby Rose, it's not Ruby Rose's character. It's a complete and I I always thought that was odd. I I honestly thought that wouldn't it be better to take a 2-year hiatus and just retool the show entirely and reboot it? So I don't know. It it's curious. 
it's curious. I'm at least interested to see what's going to happen here, but I, I can get your apprehension, Ben. I absolutely do. So it's going to be interesting to see how this turns out. All right. Uh, let's see here. Next up, anonymous viewer writes, Thoughts on uh, Gugu Mbathra. She's a phenomenal actress and has some big, decent roles, but she hasn't gotten that big standout role, at least not what from I've seen. She's my Jennifer Garner. Yes. Okay. So just like uh, uh, Yaya, just like Yaya, uh, and I always wonder if I'm pronouncing uh, Mbatha. I, I think it's Mbatha. I'm always afraid that I'm saying her name like Mbaku, but she has started to put together a really hot career. And recently, one of the big things that, of course, that they announced her for was that she was going to be in the Loki series. And everybody's super excited about that. And she is stupid beautiful. She's just absolutely... Let me bring her up here. Hold on a second. Uh, she's absolutely stupid beautiful. There we go. Let me bring this up. And... Yeah, she has just started to roll. It, it just like Yaya, it it feels like every other I, I just feel like every other thing I hear get announced, she's attached. Now, right now, I think she's only got two things upcoming, which is uh C Cole, which is coming, and then obviously Loki. And obviously Loki is gonna be taking up a lot of her time. So I'm not surprised she doesn't have a lot of stuff lined up after that right away. She's terrific in morning show, by the way. I am curious, what is this C Cole? I'm not really familiar with it. Oh, she's doing a movie with Sam Worthington. Okay. <clears throat> That's Seacole. The, bi uh, the biopic of Mary Seacole, a Scottish Jamaican nurse and heroine during the Sumerian War, the Crimean War. Okay, interesting. Being directed by Charlie Stratton. I'm not... Okay, sorry. Watch me as I, I get to, I go down these IMDb rabbit holes all the time. What else did he direct? <clears throat> um... I'm not really, I mean, Everword, I, obviously I've heard of that. I'm not really familiar. And I can't ever say I've ever seen Cranky Puss. I've never seen Cranky Puss. I don't know what that is. Anyway, long story short. Yes, she's amazing. And I can totally get why she would be your Jennifer Garner. Jennifer Garner's like my all-time celebrity crush. Uh, anyway, all right, next up. <clears throat> Casey McNatt writes, one of two. Hey, John, I wasn't a big fan of Ruby Rose's Batwoman. I just wasn't a fan of that character at all. However, there was one person uh, in that show that still got me to tune in to watch, and that show was uh, Beth Kane. Now, is Beth Kane the one who plays her sister? Hold on a second. Uh, Batwoman. Let me pull this up. Uh, like I said, I only watched like the first two or three episodes, and then I then I tapped out. Which one was Beth Kane? Now, was that the one who was the psychotic sister? Um, I can't find her. I don't know who. Yeah, I, I'm not. Show, and that was Beth Kane. I'm not seeing Beth Kane anywhere, either in the either actress or or the. Unless that's supposed to be Alice, who's the psychotic sister, I think. Oh, yeah. Everybody in the thing is saying, yes, John, it's Alice. Okay. It's the villain. All right. There you go. Again, I only, like, I thought the, I thought she was kind of interesting, but again, I only watched the first few episodes. It's going to be interesting now that they don't have that family dynamic. 
How's that going to translate? And, you know, I've read, I didn't see it, but I read what the season one kind of cliffhanger stuff was. How are they going to continue that now, now that Ruby Rose's character isn't even there? I mean, so a lot of questions to be raised there. Anyway, Casey also went on to write, her portrayal as the villain, Alice, there you go. I should have just kept reading. I would have seen it. Uh, was so great. I just wanted to turn uh, into that show to see what she did next. Probably meant tune into that show to see what she did next. I don't know if she is season two, uh, but if she is, I will probably still be watching the show just for her. Well, let's see if she is in season two. Oh, by the way, want to point this out. Point this out. This is important. Good Canadian kid right here. From Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Good Canadian kid. I like her already. All right. Is she in season two? Well, it says right here she's in episode 2.1. That's what, So that's season two, episode one. So, I mean, she's at least in the beginning of it. So I, I'm, we'll see. We'll see. I hope for your sake and for sake of the fans of the show, Casey, I hope she is there. And now I hope she's there because now I know the actress. Oh, by the way, the actress's name is Rachel uh, Scarston. Rachel Scarston. And well, Rachel Scarston is a good Canadian kid, so I'm cheering for her. I hope she does well. All right. uh, Let's move on here. Thanks for that, Casey. Next up, Jonathan Ada writes. We learned it'll be $600 million for the new Bond film. Well, not necessarily. That just said, that's just what MGM said. Hey, discussions start at $600 million uh, for the new Bond film. So what if streaming companies each chipped in money for streaming rights? Let's say Apple, Netflix, and Amazon each pitched in $200 million. Could something like that happen given the times we're in now? No, and I'll tell you why. Because everything in the streaming wars, it is all about exclusive content. The streaming wars is going to be all about exclusive content. What do you have that only people can only see it if they come to your network, right? That's why to Apple, it may be worth 200 million, although I still think the price tag is way too high, but Apple to them, it was worth it to spend $200 million on the next Marty Scorsese movie. Why? Because the only place, if you want to watch the next Marty Scorsese movie, you've got to have Apple Plus. You got to have Apple Plus. What's it worth to Apple if that same Marty Scorsese movie can also be seen on Hulu, can also be seen on Amazon Prime, can also be seen on Netflix, can also be seen on uh, CBS All Access can also be seen on this on ESPN Plus, whatever. Well, the value of that property now shrinks. Now the value is almost gone to them because it's not an exclusive piece of content. Why would a streaming service want to put up money to get something made that people don't have to come to your streaming network in order to see it? They can still just as easily go to one of your competitors. So, yeah. And again, to streaming, again, we just looked at those Sasha Barrett Cohen numbers, right? Mulan got 1.1 million viewers in its opening weekend. 1.1. Borat got 1.6. That's not worth $600 million. It's not worth $200 Hell, it's not worth $100 million. But... But yeah, the the baseline there though is that uh, why would 
why would Amazon or why would Netflix want to put up $200 million for something that people can go to Apple TV plus to watch? That's the thing. In the streaming wars, it's all about what is your exclusive content. That's what's going to win the streaming wars. Who has the best exclusive content? All right. Uh, it's good that you're thinking outside of the box, though, Jonathan. All right. Uh, R. Lee writes, Hey, John, I've been a longtime Netflix subscriber, and I've noticed since Disney Plus and Apple Plus, Amazon, etc., have come out, Netflix ramped up original programming and content acquisitions. To me, that's how you stay competitive. They're not going anywhere, John. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. That is also why in as much money as Netflix takes in, Netflix takes in a lot of money. Netflix takes in a lot of money. The problem is they spend more money than they make. They spend more money than they make. With all the money they make, they actually spend more money than they make. That is why they're saying that by the end of 2020, they're, they're, I just read some new estimates that Netflix is actually now going to, their debt is going to grow to $20 billion in debt. Now, that's okay because they have tons of IP, they have a lot of, they generate a lot of revenue and all that kind of stuff, but that only will last you for so long. That's why you see some of these other streaming services not taking the Netflix approach. Now, is this to say that Netflix is doomed? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying at all. But they are do the way they are operating at the moment is not long-term sustainable. They are going deeper into debt to try to keep a leg up on their competition. And then they'll probably ebb their spending and stuff like that. But for the next couple of years, they're going to be spending a lot of money. They're spending more money than they make. And that's, um, that's, that's hard to wrap our heads around when you consider the, the billions and billions and billions of dollars of revenue that Netflix takes in. It's hard to wrap our heads around that they actually spend more money than they make. And that's fine. Sometimes you got to do that in business. Absolutely. You have to do that in business. Sometimes you got to spend money to make money, but it's not sustainable long-term. So we'll see if this gambit will pay off. We will see. I mean, Netflix is just so huge. So I'm not predicting they're going anywhere either. All right. Holland Love. Uh, tips in $20. Thank you, Holland, for, su for supporting the channel on that level, man. I appreciate that. Uh, I've not been able to send any super chats in a while, but I would just want to send some love to the channel because I watch every day. Thank you for the content. Oh, dude, thank you so much. It's always nice when somebody wants to write in and contribute to the show just because they want to and they enjoy the content. I really appreciate that, man. Thank you so much for that. And thank you. I, I mean, the name, Holiday, you've been around as a viewer of this channel for a long time. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for supporting the show, man. I really appreciate that, dude. All right. Michael Antonucci writes, did you hear that Sony pushed back Ghostbusters from March to June? And do you think that could affect Morbius or Venom? Yes, I did hear that. And yes, it can. Because if I'm remembering off the top of my head, I think it's like within two weeks of of Venom, I, I, I might be wrong about that off the top of my head, but a big movie being two weeks away from another big movie is totally fine, right? What you don't want to have is a big movie either on the same weekend or a big blockbuster movie 
two big blockbuster movies just one week apart from each other. That's where you get into trouble. But if you're two weeks apart, to me, it's absolutely no problem. However, when it's two big films from the same studio, that can become problematic. And so... Yeah, I, I, right now, I don't know anything. I'm just guessing that we are going to hear uh, some more date movements for like Venom or Morbius, but I expect them to be minor moves. Like nothing like now it's been pushed another eight months. I don't expect that. I expect we're going to hear some moves, but I expect probably it's going to be minor moves. And I don't expect to hear any of those announcements for a couple of months still, but I think they'll probably shift, but they will be minor shifts. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, this right now, during the pandemic, the situation changes drastically, like minute by minute. It's not just week by week. The situation with the pandemic changes rapidly, minute by minute. So we'll see where we are uh, in a couple of months' time. All right. Uh, Thanks for sending that in, Michael. All right. Next up, we got Booster's the name and Booster writes. John, have you seen the trailer for the new Netflix movie starring George Clooney, The Midnight Sky? If so, what are your thoughts? Now, I want to point something out here. Booster wrote this in 53 minutes ago. All right. Remember a little bit earlier, somebody asked, hey, John, why do you often put your your main topics at or near the end? This is why. Because we did talk about the George Clooney uh, new Netflix trailer, but obviously Booster wasn't here at the beginning of the show during the first, you know, 15, 20, 25 minutes of the show when we talked about this already. So there's a great example of that. Anyway, Booster, just to sum up quickly, yes, I saw it. I'm very intrigued by the movie. I didn't love the trailer, but I'm super intrigued by the movie and the sounds of it. I love the cast. Again, I didn't think it was the best trailer, but that's okay. We often see great movies that have bad trailers, but uh, go on back to the uh, first part of the show and you'll be able to see me having a larger discussion of it there. Thanks for sending that in, Booster. All right, next up, Sam P. writes, Hey, John and crew, do you have a favorite chemistry between actors in TV or film? I know they're presenters and not actors, but mine would be James, Richard, and Jeremy from Top Gear, the Grand Tour, uh, due to their love-slash-hate relationship. I've only ever seen like one or two episodes. I'm not a car guy. I'll, I'll just admit, I'm not a car guy. I know very, very little about cars. You know, that that I know very little about cars. All I know is that the, the Teslas have some self-driving stuff, and I'm totally I totally want one now because of that. I've been watching so many videos on YouTube lately on the Tesla Model 3. I've been watching so many videos on the Tesla. I'm like itching to pull the trigger on getting one of those Teslas. Anyway. But other than that, I know very, 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 very little. Uh, about it. One of my, I mean, there's lots of great examples of fantastic chemistry in television show or movies, but one that really stands out to me, and this is part of the reason why this show has worked for me for 15 years, is the chemistry between Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki and Supernatural as the Winchester brothers. It's, it's their dynamic that has, because I've said this a lot about Supernatural, You know, Supernatural may not every season have the best storyline. Like every season has its own storyline. And not every season has had the best storyline. Like the season with the Leviathan, not the greatest storyline season, right? But the thing that has always kept me back 
is I want to hang out with the Winchester boys for an hour. I just love the chemistry and, and their side characters, you know, whether it was Bobby in the earlier seasons or Castiel, he's great. I mean, one of my favorite television characters of all time was Crowley in Supernatural. Um, played by Mark. I forget the actor's last name, Mark. If you guys in the live chat remember Mark, the actor who played Crowley uh, in Supernatural, that'd be great if you can fire that into the live chat. Uh, Mark Shepard, thank you, Lisa. I appreciate that, Lisa. Thank you very much. Mark Shepard, love him. He's actually appearing in Doom Patrol too right now. Kind of like a Crowley sort of character. Anyway, um, it's that chemistry. It's that on-screen dynamic that I just love hanging out with them for an hour. You know what I mean? So that's one that stands out a lot to me. Thanks for that, Sam. All right. Preston Walden writes, John, being that it's Halloween season, what are some of your favorite horror films that you could recommend to your audience? Well, I'm not a massive horror guy, but I mean, I, you've heard me talk a lot about my two all-time favorite horror films. My number one all-time favorite horror film goes, I think it's from the early 80s. Let me see what year it came out. Because I remember, I saw it when I was a kid. Hold on a second. American Werewolf in London, 1981. I was just, I was a wee little child. I was a wee lad. When American Werewolf in London came out, not to be confused with its horrible, horrible kind of namesake, American Werewolf in Paris. American Werewolf in London continues to this day to be my all-time favorite horror film. Directed by the great John Landis. Um, it is continues to this day to be my all-time favorite horror film. Horror movies do not scare me. This one freaks the hell out of me. Generally speaking, horror movies don't scare me. This one scares the bejeebies out of me. I mean, even to this day. This is still a movie as a grown-ass man that I probably can't watch at night with the lights off. <laughs> it's still the one that does it to me. Uh, my second favorite one, uh, I can't. I can always forget how to spell this. Then there we go. My second favorite one is the 2005 Neil Marshall film, The Descent. This movie to me is brilliant. The follow-up was all right, but the first one was incredible. This movie freaks the hell out of you long before the monsters ever show up. I mean, it just freaks the absolute hell out of you long before, just, just from the claustrophobia. And I don't have claustrophobia, but if you don't have claustrophobia, you will have it by the time you're done watching this movie. Watching these girls go cave diving is just like, oh my God, it's so stressful. Anyway, those are my favorite two horror films uh, is American Werewolf in London and The Descent. Neither are really, oh, I guess you could kind of, yeah, American Werewolf in London, that's kind of a, that's kind of a Halloween-ish movie, I guess you could say. The Descent isn't really, but but those are those are my go-to horror movies, man. Those are my absolute go-to horror movies. Anyway, thanks for writing that in, Preston. Shadow Jester writes, John, I think you missed Ryan's point. It's not who made Ray unrelated. It's about how they said that and then made her a Palpatine. So James Gunn's carte blanche may not what it may not be 100% like they'll say it's a multiverse or something. Also Harry Potter on Xbox too. Oh, is that Harry Potter game going to be on Xbox as well? I did not know that. Well, I lean PlayStation. So there's that. Um, I, I, I don't think that's what Ryan was saying. I think Ryan was, was, was inferring that Ryan Johnson changed what Ray was supposed to be, but maybe I misunderstood it. Whatever. Um, yeah. The whole multiverse thing, about, I think people misunderstand a lot what 
Walter Hamada was saying about multiverse and how he's going to use multiverse. I, I feel like he's going to use, here's my thinking. And I, I may be completely wrong about this, by the way, to me, look, when people hear Walter Mata talk about multiverse, they think that means multiverse is going to be the thing that explains why all these multiple universe of characters cross over all the time, right? I suspect that Walter Hamada is actually going to do the opposite. I think he's going to use the multiverse scenario as an explanation of why you don't see these things cross over all the time. You know, so when people ask, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How is Jared Leto Joker here, but Joaquin Phoenix is Joker there? Multiverse. Not multiverse as in, now we can have them cross over and we'll have the two jokes. No, no, no. Multiverse becomes the explanation about why they're not in the same thing. So a lot of people, understandably so, think Walter Hamada is using multiverse as a mechanism to have everything cross over. We're going to have Superman universe with the Batman from that universe cross with three Jokers from all these universes, blah, blah, blah. Whereas I got the impression, and I could be totally wrong about this. I'm not betting any money on this whatsoever. But I got the impression that more Hamada was is using multiverse as a mechanism to explain why they don't cross over. Why, why that universe has a Batman and that universe also has a Batman, but not as a mechanism to have them cross over and do stuff. Then you can get something like Flashpoint that becomes a nexus where you can say, okay, here they do. And this kind of explains the multiverse. And then we move forward making our own individual movies. So I, it'll be interesting to see which way they go. It'll be interesting to see which way they go. So that, that we've got a lot to find out in the coming years of what they're doing. All I know is that right now I really like the job Hamada's done and I'm looking forward. I mean, I'm more excited today about the DCU than I have been in a long time. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. All right. Thanks for that, Shadow Jester. Uh, Wyatt Bender writes, hello, John. If there was one comedy film you could still watch that still makes you laugh your f until your face hurts, which one would it be? Mine, hands down, is Step Brothers with Will Ferrell and John C. Riley. That movie never ceases to make me laugh. Listen, Step Brothers is an absolute go-to movie for me. Step Brothers is an absolutely go-to movie for me. And for Anne, uh, my wife Anne. We can watch the hell out of that movie. We watch that movie all the time. Um, so there's a couple that I have actually when it comes to comedies that are absolute 100% surefire will make me smile and grin and laugh. Uh, here's a couple of them. Step Brothers, absolutely. Staying in the Will Ferrell vein, Anchorman. The first Anchorman, Legend of Ron Burgundy. Uh, th that movie never fails to make me laugh hilariously. Uh, my all-time favorite comedy uh, 40 year old virgin with Steve Carell. That, that to me is the, the best comedy ever made. Um, and I'll also throw in there the first Zoolander. I, I can, I, I can watch Zoolander every night for six months and I'll laugh every time. So those are some of the ones that are like, and I'm not necessarily saying these are the greatest comedies of all time, other than 40 year old virgin, which I am saying is the greatest comedy of all time. 
But these are just ones that it doesn't matter how many times I see them. I can go back to them over and over and over again. And they will never fail to entertain me, put a smile on my face, and make me laugh. So those are a couple for my... If you got some of them, guys, drop them in the comments. I'd love to hear what some of yours are. All right, Wyatt Bender also writes, I miss going to the theater so much. Me too, dude. Uh, I usually go to the Regal Cinema and RPX Theater. I've been going there ever since I was a kid. I've seen every single comic book film and original films there. I wish this pandemic is over so I can go again. Oh, man. It's funny. Ann and I were out on a walk last night. Uh, we were walking our dogs. And, you know, we're talking, hey, what are we doing tomorrow night? Do you have any plans? And blah, blah. Oh, and like, oh, wouldn't it be great? Like normally we just say, let's just keep walking and go over to the AMC Burbank 16 and go to a movie. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, my God. It would be so great. You know, I've got a movie theater like that, too. It, it's um, it's it used to be, I don't think it's called this anymore. But for those of you who are in Canada, Cineplex uh, Theaters. They had a line of theaters called Cineplex uh, Silver Cities. And it was these big grand theaters that would have massive ceilings with giant airplanes and spaceships and dragons hanging from the ceiling. And they were great, just awesome movie going experiences back when Cineplex offered awesome movie going experiences. But the Cineplex Silver City in Ancaster, Ontario, which is a part of Hamilton. Hamilton's my hometown. The Silver City Ancaster is like that is one of the most special places in the world to me. I drove across the country on a couple of occasions. Like I literally drove thousands of miles, not hundreds, thousands of miles on a number of occasions when there would be a big movie coming out that I was excited about because I had to be in that movie theater to watch it. And uh, it's in the Meadowlands for those of you who are around the Southern Ontario area and you know the one I'm talking about. Uh, I, I would go to that theater all the time. All the time I would go. So I've, I've got that special one too. All right, let's move on here. Uh, next up, Ahmed Z writes, with Mandalorian season two coming this Friday. You know, in a year of crap, just let us have this. Mandalorian season two is coming. In just a couple of days. Mm. I'm so excited for this. Anyway, with Mandalorian season two coming this Friday, what is your take with WandaVision's release date? Uh, heard they're doing reshoots so close to supposed release date coming 2020. Also, I don't know what that is before Black Widow. Um, why don't they give us Black Widow uh, through premiere on Disney Plus? Well, I mean, okay, you, you, got a, you got a thousand things there, Ahmed, so let me just touch on, a, I'll just touch on a couple of them. I don't even remember what the exact release date is for WandaVision. Isn't it like right after Mandalorian, if, I, if I'm not mistaken? Uh, WandaVision release date. Uh, oh, December, yeah, so it should be, that's right. So they're going to time it because one of the big problems when Mandalorian came out, great. When Mandalorian was done, Disney Plus had nothing. There was nothing left. Now they're going to play Mandalorian season two. And then as soon as that's done, they're going to have WandaVision. That's great. As far as um, why don't they give us Black Widow through a premiere thing? Because they don't want to go broke. It was a disaster. They tried doing that with, um, with Mulan and it was an absolute disaster. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Mulan proved it. Uh, they're they're going to go broke. They're going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars if they put out Black Widow on uh, Disney Plus 
as a premier thing. They're going to lose hundreds of millions. They know now this can change. The longer this pandemic stretches out, you've heard me say this before, the longer this stretches out, the more and more things that were impossible become possible, right? We've seen it already. And the longer this stretches out, the more and more impossible things will become possible. So who knows what's going to happen in two months. But as of right now, uh, Disney's like, uh, no, we, we tried the whole, let's take a movie and put it on Disney Plus thing. And it it wrecked them. They lost so much money on that. Uh, it was pathetic. It was an absolute disaster for them. So they know they put a Black Widow in theaters. If they get on the other side of the pandemic, they put this thing out in theaters. Minimum, it's going to make them $700 million. Minimum, it's going to make $700 million. I mean... You're talking about a potentially 1.2, 1.3, 1.4 billion dollar film. Potentially. Minimum, you're talking 700 million. Probably, really, in the 800 to 900 million dollar range. That's not something they can come close to. Even after you factor in, you know, one third of that being taken away for the movie theaters and all that kind of stuff. Even when you factor all that into it, they can't come close. They can't come close and they know it. So then, yeah, because if Disney thought for one second that, hey, we can make almost as much money, we can make almost as much money by putting Black Widow on Disney Plus right now as we would if we get a theatrical release in mid-2021, they would they would do it like that because it's all about the money, baby. It's all about the dollar dollar bills. It's all about the dollar bills. It's a business. As Robert Meyer Burnett would say, it's show business, not show friends. If they thought for one second they could get even almost as much money by putting Black Widow on streaming, they would put it on streaming. Now, I say that now. But remember, the longer this pandemic stretches out, let's say there is no vaccine by April, which we're talking like six months from now. There should be. But let's say there isn't. And we get into March, April, May. June and it, everything is still as bad as it was and the theaters still aren't open, blah, blah, blah. Well, guess what? Disney's going to revisit this whole putting Black Widow on Disney Plus thing. You bet your ass they will. But it'll be a disaster. They'll just have no other choice at that point. For now, they know their best bet is to get it out theatrically if they can. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, next up. Uh, Wyatt Bender writes, if you could bring back any comedy genius back from the dead, who would it be? For me, it would be Robin Williams. The world has been so empty since his past. I, I mean, listen, we have lot, look, Richard Pryor. I mean, I mean, I'm a God. That was, that was a comedic genius that we lost. Robin Williams uh, would definitely be high up there. John Candy uh, for me would definitely be really high up there. Um, but yeah, I, I think probably, it would probably be between Richard Pryor and, um, yeah, probably Robin Williams and Richard Pryor would probably be the ones that would be right up there for me. Um, somebody, I think Brian just in the live chat just said, uh, Tommy Boy, yeah, Chris Farley. Chris Farley was good too. George Carlin. How great is the stuff routine by George Carlin? I mean, so George Carlin would be another one. Absolutely. Um, 
anyway, uh, let's see here. Uh, somebody saying Mulan is somebody saying in the live stream Mulan did great for streaming. No, it did not. No, go actually look up the real numbers. It really didn't. Um, anyway, next up, um, certified lover boy writes, uh, JC, we're back in week eight of NFL season and you haven't mentioned the Pats yet. Uh, two and four. Oh, I've talked about the Pats on, on my social media though. I, and, and I actually talked about them yesterday when I was talking to Rob. Anyway, Pats yet two and four so far, and they may not even make the playoffs with distraught cam, no weapons, deflated defense and a tough division. Don't see much hope for the rest of the year. Oh, no, no. This year is a total write off for the Patriots. This year is a total. Listen, and I kind of suspected it would be the moment they signed Cam Newton. I knew this is a this is a wreck. Cam Newton is not a good quarterback. I'm sorry. He's got all the physical weapons. He's got speed and strength and all that kind of stuff. The problem is, unlike a Patrick Mahomes, right, type of quarterback, Patrick Mahomes doesn't just have all the physical weapons. When you watch him play, every play, he makes the smart decision. He can quickly evaluate a scenario in split seconds and make good decisions. That's what makes Tom Brady the greatest quarterback of all time. Tom Brady's not the fastest or the biggest or the strongest or any of that stuff. He's not the best athlete. He's just the smartest. He always made, well, not always, but more times than not, he'd make the smart decision. He could read a defense like nobody else and make the smart decision. And you get quarterbacks out there like right now, like Jackson and Mahomes. And, and some other great ones, uh, Drew Brees. I mean, you're talking about guys who don't have Cam's physical weapons. They're just smarter quarterbacks. You know, you look at Jackson over there in Baltimore. That dude, like, yeah, he does all these incredible physical things. But when you really watch an entire game with, with, the, uh, with the Ravens, did I say Falcons earlier? I meant the Ravens. When you watch an entire game with the Ravens, I am floored by his football IQ. That's a smart dude. He can read a field and make smart decisions. Patrick Mahomes, he can show off his weapons because he makes smart decisions. Cam Newton, that has never been his strength. That's just never been his strength. And that shows. He's getting exposed now. In a game and a thing that isn't built around him specifically, he's getting exposed. And I knew the moment they signed Cam Newton. I knew, well, this is going to be a lost season. I, I didn't, you know, I don't expect them to only win two games by the end of the season or anything like that, but I knew it was going to be a lost season. And then they'll get into next year and hopefully they'll get a different quarterback. But, oh yeah. Yeah. Now listen, I can't complain too much though, because as a guy who's been a Patriots fan since the day, days of Bill Parcells being their coach, I'm no bandwagon um, a Patriots fan. I've been a fan since the day that Bill Parcells, who beat my Buffalo Bills in the Super Bowl in that heartbreaking last second missed field goal, became a big fan of Bill Parcells as a coach. And then when he went to New England, I kind of followed him to New England. And I've been a fan ever since. And I got nothing I complain about. They have had more success than any other professional sports team in, in the last you know, 20, 30 years. It's insane. But I'm feeling the pain that a lot of my brethren, football fans, are feeling. If you're a Bengals fan or a Browns fan or or an anybody else fan, a Dallas Cowboys fan right now, I'm feeling your pain because right now my team sucks. My team sucks. It's amazing watching what you know, old man Tom Brady at 43 
He's in the MVP conversation right now over there in Tampa Bay. He's throwing like nine touchdowns, no picks in his last two games. It's crazy watching what he's doing. Anyway, sorry, guys. I can get I can get going on sports, and I keep talking for a long time. All right, let's go on next here. James Argenta writes, uh, Rachel uh, Scarston, who we were just talking about in Batwoman, also played Black Canary in the TV show Birds of Prey. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Uh, the main question I have for season two of Batwoman is how uh, they are going to deal with the fake Bruce Wayne. Uh, they are going to Dallas and it says it was a dream. Are they going to go Dallas and say it was all a dream? Bruce actor is not listed for season two. Yeah. And that's now again, I didn't watch it, but I read about how season one ended. We had a Bruce Wayne impersonator. In there, so what are they going to do with that? I mean, I I'm just curious what they're going to do with the Alice character at all now that there's not this familial connection to who Batwoman is, right? Now, again, I I can't speculate too much because I only watched like two, maybe I watched three episodes. I think maybe it was just two. Anyway, so I'm not really familiar with the show. Okay? I just watched first few episodes and I I tapped out uh, after first few, but I I'm telling you, I'm probably going to give season two a chance. And uh, we'll see where it goes. But th that's a good question to ask, James. That's a that's like the question. That's the question. All right. Russell Amador writes, uh, hey, John, aren't we due for a new Mortal Kombat early next year? We are. I haven't heard any rumblings about it uh, and no uh, trailer, but strictly based on how things are going, I'm assuming we expect a delay, right? I mean, I, I think so. What is that release date for that Mortal Kombat? I mean, there's a couple of interesting, there's a couple of interesting in that genre movies on the way. We got the new Snake Eyes with Henry Golding. I'm looking forward to that. They're rap filming on that. We're supposed to have uh, this new Mortal Kombat. Uh, combat movie release date uh, 2021. Let's see what it says here. Oh, it's supposed to be coming January. I thought it was like February. January 15th is when it's supposed to come out. Yeah, I, I fully expect a delay to be announced. Because once we get into November, now you're getting tight with there being no trailer. Right? We're still in October. I'm not worried that there's no trailer. But once you get in November for a movie that's coming out in January, there's still being no trailer. That Yeah, I, I mean... Yes, I, I think you're absolutely Rus right, Russell. I put my money on what you're saying. I, I, I think we're probably uh, primed here to to find out there's going to be a delay. I, I think that's probably going to be the case, Russell. I think you're right about that. Shadow Jester writes, John, I agree with your thought on Hamada, meaning they don't cross over in DC Multiverse. So Gunn could kill Quinn in his movie, but she's still alive in other movies because his Suicide Squad isn't on Earth-6 or... <clears throat> W.E. and the main uh, D.C. is Earth 1, etc. I mean, they could do that. But here's the problem with multiverse, right? This is one of the big problems with multiverse and time travel and all that kind of stuff. Characters dying doesn't mean anything. Like, I'll be watching this movie and they'll kill Harley Quinn, but I'm not going to care. Because it doesn't matter. They can still have 85 other Harley Quinns. So it doesn't matter. There becomes no consequences. Multiverse bullshit means no consequences. There's no stakes. There's no stakes in any of these movies that lean heavily into multiverse. There's simply no stakes. Let's look at the MCU for heaven's sakes. Oh no, Gamora died. Boo hoo. Oh, so sad. Thanos throw off a cliff. Don't worry about it. She'll, she'll be back in uh, 10 minutes. And guess what? 
Gamora's back. Oh my god, it's technically it's not the same Gamora. It's a good it's Gamora. It's the same Gamora. Uh, see, technically, John, it's from the time it, 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 it doesn't matter. You can try to explain O-Vision your way around it all you want. Gamora died. Gamora's back. Oh, no. Loki died saving his brother in a big sacrifice. Boo-hoo. Oh, don't worry about it. Loki's back. Loki's back. As the John, you see, it's not technically in the timeline. It's Loki. Loki's back. Oh, no, they killed Spider-Man. I don't want to go, Mr. Stark. Boo-hoo. Oh, don't worry. Spider-Man's back. That one wasn't multiverse. Still, it's a consequence of the whole fake death universe thing. It, it removes any stakes. There's no consequences. I don't give a shit. You know, now they can do a movie. I mean, it depends. I'm going to trust that Walter Hamada is going to do it smart. All right? I'm going to trust that Walter Hamada is going to do it smart. I'm giving Walter Hamada the benefit of the doubt. But if you don't handle it right, then you could have... You know, Man of Steel 2 and a new proper Doomsday shows up, right? A Doomsday who was actually made by Kryptonian scientists twisting and manipulating and forcing an evolution on this ultimate creature of death and destruction with a built-in hatred for all Kryptonians. Fine, Superman, fine. And Henry Cavill's back, yay. And Doomsday could show up at the end of the movie and rip off Superman's head. I won't care. I won't care. Because if they handle this multiverse thing haphazardly, it's going to be, oh, I don't give a shit. Who cares if they killed Henry Cavill? He's going to be back in 10 minutes. They're just going to say, oh, no, uh, you see, that was Earth 17-B Ultra 1-5. This new Henry Cavill Superman is going to be from 7-4 Ultra 1-B. See, it's a totally different Superman. This is going to be Henry Cavill Superman. Just going to be Henry Cavill Superman. No consequences. I, I keep on referring to this one a lot. I'm trying to um, – Max Landis, I talk about this video he did years ago all the time. But Max Landis, um, he made this video a long time ago about the death and return of Superman in the comics. Uh, it's one of the greatest YouTube videos out there, just to be honest. It really is one of the truly greatest YouTube videos ever made. Uh, so Max Landis makes this video about the death and return of Superman. And really, it's it's hilarious and it's great and it's insightful. But really, it's all about the final minute of it. And he talks about how the death and return of Superman, in a way, kind of ruined comic books. Because now it meant death wasn't a problem anymore. There had been characters before that had died in comics and returned, but it had never been done. It, the death and return of Superman is really what kind of changed everything in the sense that no characters ever die, really. They, they'll be back tomorrow, one way or the other. And Max Landis puts it in a very short way, but very succinctly and very effectively about how that kind of ruined comic books in a way. It took death off the board. And when death is taken off the board, consequences are no longer on the board. And when there's no consequences, there can't be dramatic tension. And without dramatic tension, it's very hard to tell compelling stories that will really get a, a, a reader invested into it. If the heroes are never really in danger, and that's the thing, when death is off the board, the heroes are never really in danger. And when the heroes aren't really in danger, 
How invested can we get? I, I don't know. Isaiah, it's something I can I can kind of uh, rant on for hours at a time, which I've done before. But uh, anyway, yeah, there's that. Um, okay, guys, just about out of time here. I'll get through these last couple here really fast. Uh, Casey McNatt writes, Hey, John, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I recommend seeing the 2007 Michael Doherty trick-or-treat film during this time. Uh, ever since that movie came out, I have made it a tradition to watch this movie every Halloween night. I will tell you what, I am the only person in my friend group that really doesn't like that movie. I actually don't think it's any good. I think it's just cheesy and dumb, but I say that as being the only guy in my social circles, I think that all my other friends love trick or treat. Everybody loves trick or treat. I'm the only weirdo who doesn't, but I remember watching it and I was a little bit late. It had already started getting a lot of hype and it's kind of an anthology movie in a way, but every, it was already getting a lot of hype. And then I sat down to watch it. And I'm like, this is dumb. When does it get good? But I'm like the only person I know. I'm like the only person I know that didn't like trick or treat. So I'm sorry. Unfortunately, Casey, I have seen it. And unfortunately for me, I don't get to be in on the joke with everybody. Cause I, yeah, that one just didn't work for me. Unfortunately, just didn't work for me. Unfortunately. All right. Last question of the day. Um, last question of the day is Wyatt Bender writes, which spoof movie do you think is the funniest and the worst? Uh, to me, the funniest is superhero movie and the worst is date movie. I don't think superhero movies all, all, all that funny, honestly. To this day, I mean, the best and the funniest one to me is Spaceballs. Um, after that, and, and maybe tied with that is the original Airplane. I mean, the original Airplane is kind of the king of all the spoof movies. Um, they haven't made a good spoof movie in a very, very long time. So yeah. Yeah. So those would be the ones that I would go to. The worst ones is almost any spoof movie made in the last 10 years. <laughs> I mean, it can be almost any of them, but, uh, space balls, airplane, hot shots and hot shots part two were also really, really good. Uh, that one with Val Kilmer that I keep forgetting the name of it where they yell latrine. I keep forgetting the name of that one. Um, uh, the one with Val Kilmer. If you guys know in the, in the, uh, live chat, which one is that Val Kilmer one? I love this one. And I always forget the name of it. Um, top secret again, it's Lisa coming to the rescue. Top secret. Top secret. I love that. That's another good one too. So that's the one for me. All right. We just had one come in from Jesse, but that's going to have to wait until tomorrow's show. Don't worry, Jesse. We'll get, we'll start off tomorrow's show with your question. We'll lead off with yours, but for now we've run out of time. All right, guys, that will do it for me for this installment of the John Campia show. Thank you guys so much for being here and making this show part of your day. It's a truly awesome honor that you would do that. Special thank you to all you guys who sent in the live questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you also supported this channel while you did it. Uh, sorry, Rob wasn't here today. We'll have Rob back on tomorrow. And I hope you guys will come and join us and listen. Just to remind you guys about it, if you haven't done so already, why don't you take a second and click on that subscribe button, become a subscriber to the John Campy YouTube channel, and it'll keep you up to date on all the stuff that we got going on here. All right, guys. In the meantime, please do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. Also, guys, listen, if you're living in the United States of America, I'm not going to tell you which way to vote. Just go out and vote. Whoever it is you're voting for, just don't vote for Kanye. Uh, whoever it is you're going to vote for, go out and vote. You can still get in early voting now. Go out and vote. Get your ballot in early, all that kind of stuff if you want to. But just please take advantage of this time and take advantage of the awesome honor and privilege 
the privilege it is. You live in a country where you get to vote. So please go and do that. All right, guys, that'll do it for me. My name is John Campion. And until next time, my friends, bye-bye.